1: People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. The Bradley fighting vehicles on its way to Ukraine, fifty of them to be precise. This armored personnel carrier on tracks is not a tank. Don't call it a tank. Once maligned as a boondoggle that represented everything wrong with the Pentagon weapons programs, the Bradley is now a much desired piece of armor. How did that happen? With us today to suss all this out is Sebastian Roblin. Roblin is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in NBC Forbes, and of course, War is Boring. Sebastian, thank you so much for coming on to the show.
2: Yeah, it's been such a pleasure. I've been a a fan for many years now. Uh, So what
1: is a Bradley fighting vehicle?
2: So, uh, yeah, when you use the term fighting vehicle, it doesn't necessarily say too much the average person. But uh, the the operators of these things are really picky about the title. Uh, But a good way to start with it to think is that this is uh, an infantry fighting vehicle. It's meant to transport foot soldiers, but not only. Because uh, the the actually just transporting foot soldiers, it was done quite a bit. Even World War II, Vietnam, you had uh, the U.S. used first half tracks during the Second World War, and then these boxy rhombus shaped M113s in Vietnam, and they're basically like battle taxis. Like they help the troops get to the the front line. And, you know, they could take a little, some small arms fire and probably the, the, the guys being transported inside are, are safe. But once they really run into enemy heavy weapons, they're, they're in trouble and they're not meant to, to do too much fighting once they've dropped the, the troops off. Uh, so if, as an infantry fighting vehicle, though, you, you, you then say, well, the vehicle itself should also be a major contributor to the fight. And, you know, you could battle all sorts of heavy weapons and then you don't have to have the foot soldiers get out and point their rifles in the middle of a tank battle, say it was kind of the original concept.
1: Well, was that the original was that the original concept or was that a concept that came later during the planning phases as dramatized in a movie, perhaps?
2: <laughs> yes. Well, it's tricky because. To be fair, preceding the Bradley by like 20 years almost, uh, the Soviets came up with a similar type of vehicle, the BMP, which is really ubiquitously being used by both sides. and so that already had the idea of like, this is a troop transport for infantry that can also fight tanks. Now, the U.S. plans for a similar sort of vehicle didn't originally envision them fighting tanks so much. And they, they just went with a light cannon armament to fight, to fight other light armored vehicles and provide fire support and things. Uh, towards the end, uh, there's also the cavalry branch that wanted a scout vehicle and they sort of got roped in to also making, uh, make into the Bradley program. And that's why there's actually somewhat confusingly two designations, the M2, which is the infantry version and the M3, which is for cavalry. But they're also actually really quite similar. It's just the cavalry version is only meant to transport a much smaller number of troops and has some different radios and things. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, and eventually uh, the cost of like meshing the, these two projects together was high enough that there was fear Congress wouldn't approve it. So they're also like, well, why don't we just throw in some tank killing capability too? Cause that's like a sexy weapon that, that Congress will like. So the, the origins of it feel, feel kind of sordid. It's like, oh, this is uh, a boondoggle meant to sell the project. And uh that was dramatized in a, a film called "The the Pentagon Wars is how this like this program sort of spiraled and became ever more and more ambitious. Now uh and the, I think the film also looked at the fact that the uh, that there was some difficulty meeting the uh, defensive and protective uh ex- performance expectations uh The Pentagon wanted the vehicle to be protected against the the very heavy machine guns the Soviets used up to 14 and a half millimeter and I think originally the vehicle wasn't quite up to that. Uh, and had to be tweaked and things. Now, what's a bit ironic about it is that I, uh, uh although many people bring up the Pentagon Wars about how this is like another F-35 like program with lots of development issues and cost overruns. I think first, not only it, the Bradley has performed well in, in combat overall, it has some flaws which we can get into, but also, um, it's basically kind of become this, a standard pattern. Uh Like when the Soviets first introduced their BMP-1, uh, it's now retroactively called, it had some design flaws that had to be significantly changed. And But since then, this type of pattern of armament, like tracks, a small light cannon, and an anti-tank missile launcher is sort of standardized. So I think the implication that it's like a, it was badly conceived I think is more dubious because everybody else eventually did the same thing and is iterating on that general pattern. Yeah. I was
1: meditating on this, um, to the last, were you really
0: meditating on this? I was thinking about, (laughs) okay,
1: I was thinking about, um, let me do malpropisms if I want. Um, I was thinking about the Pentagon wars, last week as all this Bradley news was coming out. And I thought it was so funny to me that there's this, this movie with Kelsey Grammer uh, from 1998, that was an HBO movie was not even like in theaters about that kind of dramatizes the, the, the processing of this thing uh, or the creation of this thing. And like what a different place America was in, in 1998 with regards mm-hmm. to its relationship with its military, that we were willing to do this comedy kind of lampooning military spending. Um, and then, you know, flash forward to 2023 and the the thing that everyone like now everyone want, wants this thing. And not only mm-hmm. that, like you said, it had been it's been copied and iterated upon, um, you know, the it, it's a movie where uh, Carrie Elwes puts goats in uh, in this thing and uh, to prove that the interior of the thing will kill people. <laughs> uh, should it, you know, should it ever catch on fire? That there's, like, it would release a flammable gas that, or at release a poison gas that would kill everyone. And now this thing Sorry is very the popular. Yeah, no, no, it's all right. I, I had to deal with cats earlier. I uh, thought I chased them all said. out, but one slipped in.
2: Um, yes, and what's interesting about what you said uh, there is that when the movie came out, the Bradley might also have been easier to see as something that no longer fit what the U.S. military needed at all. The people... There was the mentality then that, look, now we're in a sort of post-Great Power conflict war. There's only going to be, like, peacekeeping or enforcement missions abroad. And a very heavy vehicle like the Bradley is, like, you know, overgunned and over-armored for that sort of thing. And so you actually see the, the next vehicle that the U.S. adopted, the Stryker, uh, which was on wheels and much more lightly armed, made in response to that. So the Bradley seemed like, oh, this is a Cold War dinosaur, which will be pointless going forward to to, to some. There'll never be another land war in Europe, they say.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. They're talking about sending the striker now too, right?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's useful, but it's probably not as urgent for uh, what the Ukrainians would like. Uh, the U.S. itself had recently decided that the striker was too lightly armed and they found ways to modify them to carry uh, anti-javelin, anti-tank missiles and uh, a a gun, a 30 millimeter gun similar to that of the Bradley, actually a a little bit bigger. So they sort of like backtracked on that. I think that there is still a feeling that wheeled vehicles might be more viable than was thought at the time. But, you know, there are also... There's still places where you wouldn't, where you might encounter more trouble, like when in very muddy fields or steep inclines. And so there's still the argument for a tracked vehicle like the Bradley, even if there's higher operating costs usually with them.
0: Could I ask you a purely hypothetical question? Mm-hmm. Could you lay out hypothetically how this might actually work in practice? Like, what's the situation on the battlefield? Then you bring in your Bradley. Uh, how exactly? Does this all work and does it work with other systems?
2: All right. Uh, so here is ideally the Bradley would work as part of a combined arms team, which means that you you have an attack where the, the tanks provide the, the heaviest firepower and also get are ready to absorb the heaviest blows coming the other way. But once they encounter, uh and the Bradleys will fight alongside them and provide some extra fire support, which is how they were used in the 1991 Gulf War. And at the time, it was even said the Bradleys destroyed more Iraqi armored vehicles than the tanks. I mean, there were more of them out there. Uh But uh, eventually, the problem with relying on tanks is that when you get to really dense or constricted terrain where you can't see too far ahead, they become really vulnerable to ambushes. And so the the... The right thing to do, which many armies fail to do because the tanks and infantry are separate branches and don't practice as much together, is to have some infantry go forward and screen the tanks, scout it out and find where the ambushers are. So even if things are tough for the infantry, at least the tanks survive and can then whack anything that they they locate. And the infantry can enter buildings, set up defensive positions. So there's a number of things they can kind of handle better than just relying on the tanks by themselves. And you still want to keep that infantry moving with the tanks, even if they're coming under, like, sniper fire or not-so-accurate artillery fire, which will, like, still shred a truck with a near miss, but maybe not so much in an armored Bradley. That was, like, one of the design characteristics was to be resilient to shrapnel from a, a heavy Soviet howitzer. Like a direct hit would would still do one in, but the, the idea is that you could keep on advancing and not have to not be pinned down when you come under small arms or or more scattered artillery attention.
1: It's kind of fascinating. After decades, this thing is finally going to the place where people kind of originally envisioned it would be used, right?
2: Yeah. And, uh, I, I should stress too that although the, the most exciting application, so to speak, is that the U.S. would like the Ukrainian army to fight like this very mobile combined arms maneuver battle, it, I would, I would guess that it will possibly be at least initially be used in a more conservative way because trying the sort of maneuvers the U.S. army likes, uh, start with the U.S. army also has air power, which manages to sort of work over some of the bigger threats to maneuver forces in advance. Uh, but you know, there's already a a very entrenched sort of stalemate where mobility is hard in Ukraine. So they might want to use the sensors and the firepower of the Bradley more conservatively at the beginning, uh as more, more as like a sort of uh, you know, as a sort of tank destroyer or assault gun. Uh the tank destroyer ability is also one you have to use at a distance because the the Bradley has like a a missile launcher, which is actually more accurate when it, it has more time to, to sort of get aimed onto target. And, uh, it also has only a few shots with that. So there's a reason why tanks haven't all replaced their big guns with missile launchers is that there there's a higher rate of fire that can be done when you're in a pinch. And, uh, also a Bradley, and unless they have are receiving the newer types of missiles, they actually have to stay still while they're guiding the missile to target to some extent, because it's, uh Somebody is actually sort of piloting the missile, which is connected to the tank by a wire that spools out for like up to two miles. So there's, it's it definitely wouldn't be used the same way you use a main battle tank. But it, uh, because it has really good sensors and uh, infrared sensors, and there's a lack of those on both sides of the war in Ukraine, but it, and especially on the Russian side, uh, it could be used as a, a more offensive platform than, uh, you know, is the doctrinal usage of it.
0: Is it hard to drive one of these things? Uh, we're handing over these vehicles to Ukraine, which I assume that most of these people will never have used one. And uh, when you think about like the Patriot system, we had to bring a whole bunch of Ukrainians over to Oklahoma mm-hmm. in order to learn how to use it. I mean, is this this easy? Is just sort of plug and play. I'm
1: sure there's a YouTube video that'll explain it.
2: Uh-huh. I I would guess that the the complexity will actually be the biggest for the maintenance and support services to to learn. I, I've heard it's a similar issue with like jet fighters. It's like the piloting is one thing, but there's a lot of stuff that's been done to try to to speed up the ease of use for so that you know non genius recruits can still operate the vehicle. But then repairing the vehicle. Uh, maintaining it that and getting logistics I, is what I would worry more about. Uh, one bonus is that Ukraine has already received tow missiles. So they, uh, they probably by now they've already used some. So they at least have some institutional knowledge and there's some efficiency in using the vehicle with the missile they already uh, have started using. But you're right that, uh, training the crew will, will take time and it has more sophisticated sensors and, and things than the average Ukrainian brigade receives on its vehicles. But I, I don't think it'll be as difficult as a Patriot. The air defense is like immensely technically complicated and lots of interlocking parts. And it's just to the point that, uh, a complete air defense unit for like a Patriot is like a, a like a whole, a large number of vehicles and hundreds of personnel all working together rather than just an individual uh, bat, uh, launcher acting by itself.
0: Is there any kind of good fatal flaw for the Bradley that we should uh, be looking for? Or does it not actually work in the cold, for example, and it's being sent into Russia? I mean,
2: you know, Did mean? you not hear
0: me say about the poison goats <laughs> and the gas?
2: Right. right. Uh, yeah, the poison goats. Uh the one that's the U S army has been a bit fixated on recently is that it's, uh, they added lots more armor to it after the Gulf War. And the version Ukraine is getting is called the M2A2 ODS, which stands for Operation Desert Storm, which was based on them. Oh, like we want way more armor on this. So it's so that several categories of weapons no longer work against it. So they added all the armor and it is harder to kill, but, uh, it, They didn't change the engine, so it weighs uh, a lot more uh, and using the same amount of engine power. And that also means it's lower to the ground, which brings up the other uh, related flaw. It's uh, not really designed for mine resistance. They were thinking the Bradley was built to fight like a defensive war in Germany. So they thought the mines will be mostly ours. And so ideally what you want for mine resistance is like a V-shaped hull and some other features that protect the passengers if something explodes under it. So uh the US is is installing better engines so that the suspension is less strained and it can lift a bit higher up the ground which protects it a bit from mines but that that'll uh you know the the engine being a bit overtaxed and will still be a, a factor i would i would think especially getting through the the mud and things and the the fact that it weighs 30 tons and the standard vehicle the ukrainians use is uh, 16 tons the bmp2 uh, so uh, again, you'll need heavier vehicles to to tow these away, to move these to the front, and to maintain them and all that. What about the paint job? <laughs> are Are you worried that uh, that they they won't uh, receive like the appropriate like winter camouflage?
1: I'm just I'm curious about that because the, the, it's funny. I, I didn't think about it till you said it. Uh, you know, we're getting the they're getting the Desert Storm model. Every mm-hmm. picture I've seen about this thing, every Getty image, every AP image that's been on top of every story has been, it's the beige model, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, sure, I'm assuming they would winter, they would do winter camo, right, for a European theater, but I,
2: I'm just curious if we'd know that or not. Honestly, I don't know too much about how rigorously they practice repainting. Uh, what I have heard is that the Ukrainians are a bit uh, more systematic at using camouflage netting for winter and that the Russians are, have been grousing that they – Uh, have not. And so they're easy. They're where, wherever they're hiding or equipment or personnel are easier to spot from the sky by drones. And so that's a big consideration. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the, some of the initial losses of the Bradley aren't in some like bold attack, but just because Russian frontline reconnaissance spotted them and, and either hit them with some kind of uh, drone based weapon or artillery. Cool fact,
0: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare Short-Term Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So why these, do you think? I mean, is I know that Ukrainians want tanks, like mm-hmm. tank tanks. And these are not tanks. And actually, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what is a tank uh, in a minute. But um, why these?
2: Uh, So I would guess that there is an aspect of like sort of hedging, like trying to push the boundary but not go too far with it. But also tanks are like, like the U.S. style, like Abrams or the Leopard 2, they're like 60 to 70 tons. So they involve an even higher degree of, of maintenance and support. And the U.S. tank ideally runs on different types of fuel. So uh, although the U.S. Uh, does have also a lot of tanks in storage, the matter of transferring them to Ukraine is, is just a, a higher degree of complication. And also I think still perceived as a higher political risk, although we might, they might eventually go over that threshold uh, too. Uh, so the the tank, a tank can definitely survive uh, some heavier fire power to the, to the front. I think it is a, another aspect of that. Uh, but also the- they're on their way out too, right? They're
1: kind of at the end of their service life or perceived service life or what some people in the Pentagon would like them like their service life to be. Right.
2: Well, yeah, the Pentagon wants to, they had plans to, I talked about how there was an engine upgrade to the Bradley and they had thought about going an even bigger upgrade after that to have a larger gun on the Bradley and some other up, updates. And then they said, no, we're going to get a new vehicle. It's been 40 years. So we should feel okay about this, but they've kept on uh, messing up the competition like time after time to replace it uh in like, Utterly spectacular ways, like billions and billions of dollars on like three or four failed attempts to replace the Bradley. Uh, and so the the current, the latest version, they've tried to release more flexible requirements so that the industry will be more creative. We'll see how how it goes. Like the last one that the Pentagon canceled, there were two finalists, and one said, we need a couple extra months to deliver the vehicle, but we can't get a license to transport it. And the other one, I think, was called the Griffin tank was basically ready. And the Pentagon said, oh, other the first company, you can't deliver it on time, you're out. Second uh, design that you offered, uh, we're not satisfied with it. Cancel the program. So some people are like, oh, actually, this is good because they didn't waste even more money with something they didn't want. But it means they had to restart it again. The target vehicle that they have will have a larger uh, cannon and some improved uh, protection. And also they hope it will eventually be able to be used robotically. So if there's like a high risk mission, they won't have to have people on board to, to use it in battle. Now, uh, one reason I should add for the Bradley being donated, it's also very available. There's a, The U.S. Army is a lot smaller than it was at the height of the cold war. So they don't, they don't have a, as many in operational service. And a lot of the older unupgraded, uh, uh, relatively, unupgraded M2A2 models. There were like 2,000 in storage. So I feel like this is a, a a fairly low cost thing to give away a vehicle that you are not going, you're not using anyway, and probably will not uh, will not see service. Like some people are like, uh, oh no, the U.S. could use it for war, and it's like, well, the the main conflict that's happening here in Ukraine will probably be the big one involving Russia for the time being. And in the Pacific, there's a, a, a relatively marginal marginal needs for armored vehicles. So, I I think it's really not at all disadvantaging the U.S. Unless you were in a hyper American tiles, like what if we sold them to somebody? It's a sort of way of mentality. How many people does it carry? Uh, so this is actually, to be fair, maybe a weakness I should have mentioned. Uh, it. The, the M2A2 Desert Storm model has seven, but it taught, some earlier versions had six and it sort of fluctuated between that number of passengers. And that's not ideal because the U.S. Army prefers its infantry squads to have, I think, nine people. So these are kind of lightweight squads and they're not uh, like the Marines used to go to battle with like 13 man squads, but they've also downsized that. The idea is that, that that those squads can take more casualties and still be effective. So, um, the infantry teams on the Bradley are a little uh more dispersed and uh they're they're not like exactly what you'd send to fight a brutal city fight, but to a certain extent that's when you call in another formation to to support the, the vehicles. Is it named after
0: General Omar Bradley?
2: Yes, and he's an interesting uh, character too. He was kind of like the, the superior to Patton that had just kind of like rein him in and chastise him for sometimes uh, going too hard or, 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 uh, or other, other things. But he was a fairly successful general uh, across World War II and he uh, stayed active, uh, criticizing, uh, like political decisions and commenting on defense issues into the sixties.
1: Okay. So, let's let's do it. Let's let's have the conversation.
2: <laughs> what the hell is uh, a tank? Oh, it's a good question because if we're honest, I think that the uh, if we look at strictly speaking the, what the first tanks looked like back in World War 1 and even many in World War 2, they might not fit some of the technical definitions we use for tanks today. I would argue that there's two aspects to it. There's the engineering aspect. What design features does it have? And then the functional aspect of what role does it play? And you can see this uh, realized in something called the tank alignment chart, which you can Google on the web, which shows you a matrix of how literal or how strict you are with the definition of in the functional as well as engineering sense. Let's look at the engineering sense first, though. Uh, I'd say it's a, it's a tracked, uh, Vehicle, which has a large uh, caliber gun in the, t- in a turret, which is meant for direct fire. So not, so we don't count these turreted artillery vehicles that are like supposed to, uh, fire at targets like a huge distance away and really don't want to get close to the enemy. So the one moving on to roll, one of the roles of a tank, but not the only one should be ideally to, to, attempted a breakthrough through into enemy lines and lean in advance that exploits the breakthrough as well. So for that, you also normally want a good degree of protection and you need mobility. Uh, But uh, the problem is to some extent, this definition is really sticking close to what we'd call the main battle tank, which is the most common type, which is, if you look at it in World War II, World War II terms is kind of between the medium and the heavy. It has the ambition of being like the mainstay of the force, like a medium tank, but also of being uh, very tough to kill with even uh, purpose-designed anti-tank weapons, which is sort of what we thought of as the heavy tank in World War II. So this is sort of a compromise between these two, and most armies today only field main battle tanks. But there was another class of vehicle you could call a tank, to the light tank, which... Um, it sort of has a somewhat different uh, utilization in theory. Like one is that you can send light tanks to places the heavy tanks can't get to because they're too heavy to transport or the ground is really unforgiving of heavyweight vehicles and you need like a rice paddies or steep mountains and so forth. So there you, you just need a lighter vehicle to be able to use armor much at all. The second reason to have it is if you're expect to fight, uh, adversaries that, uh, have limited anti-tank ability, then a light tank might be nearly as good as, as a heavy tank. Do the, get many of the same things done. Uh, and third, you can sort of use it for more armed, uh, reconnaissance. So uh, this becomes, brings us to one of the vehicles that, um, that was transferred, the, the French uh, AMX-10 RC, uh, which I think, tech, strictly speaking, you'd say engineering-wise is an armored car because it doesn't have tracks. But it really is used in some of the same ways we'd expect a light tank to be used because it has heavy firepower uh, with, like, a 105-millimeter gun in the turret. And you can use it for reconnaissance or to fight enemies like, say, insurgents in Mali or whatever. Where you don't really need a heavy tank and you're not gonna like be fighting uh, encountering too many long distance weapons that can take it out uh that looks like a tank to me
1: I'm looking it at does. it right now that, And one of the mm-hmm. sorry just go ahead sorry
2: one of the interesting things about it is it even moves like a tank because its wheels don't pivot they actually have uh it's called like a a skid tracks or whatever so you they you can you can you change the which direction the wheels go to execute turns. Like you can have it, it can pivot on spot by having the wheels on the left side go forward and on the right side go backward, for example. So in some ways it has actually pretty decent uh, mobility, uh, which is like the downside of the the wheeled vehicle and compared to a tracked one normally. Why
1: do you think we get into these fights about, I say we, why do you think weirdos online get into these fights about what is and isn't a tank?
2: Well, you know, I think there is an aspect where it's like good for people to have a slightly, a good functional role of what things, what things can accomplish, but there's also a sort of uh, elitist or sort of grammar Nazi aspect to it, where it's like, well, you have this, you know, certain group of people have specialist knowledge of a thing. So they like correcting it when the, when the public kind of gets it wrong. I think like with the, uh, the, both the Bradley and the MX-10, some people said it, it could be used like a light tank, which I think is accurate in my view. Uh, you like, again, it's contextual. You don't, you don't use it too aggressively when you're fighting Russia. But if you think that there's a sector where there's not many, any tank weapons, you can use it like a light tank kind of because they're, that they're not in that much trouble. Uh, but, uh, that mere comment sort of is, is sort of cause a bit of a storm of corrections because they're like, oh no, you're convincing the public that everything that's an armored vehicle has the capabilities of a main battle tank, which is so sure. There's an aspect of, we can, we can promote a more refined view of how like these different arms are used, but there's also an aspect of like geeks liking to sort of lord it over the, the unwashed masses. I can, I can, Yes, you got it. Sorry.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I can guarantee that a lot of people, uh, including some people I work with, kind of looked at this and like looked at the Bradley specifically and were like, that's a tank. You're not going to tell me any different. Sorry, that's a tank.
2: Yeah. If you're being shot at one, for example, it's. I'm sure it's very much like a tank, uh, except that I guess you could be hitting by like, lots of little blasts from its cannon instead of one big one for now, it's all right? But as far as, you know i i I once wrote like um you know at Tiananmen Square, right a very infamous incident where the civilians were were killed by armored vehicles. there were both uh tanks and also armored personnel carriers, and you know uh you probably did not really re- care about the difference if you were right in front of them now. If you're like a battlefield tactician, then you could say, okay, that other personnel carrier is a machine gun and I've got a whole bunch of weapon systems that can deal with that efficiently and the tank poses a different level of threat and uh, have to and requires different responses. So, uh, you know, that there is a higher level of analysis that you can apply to it, but for the average person, it still fulfills that role of being, you know, pretty well armored and dishing out a lot of firepower.
0: I, I guess there's also going to be the whole thing about whether or not we're stepping up our attack on Russia right I mean mm-hmm. if it's if we're sending propeller planes versus jets if we're sending you know uh, artillery versus rocket powered artil- you know rocket artillery uh, all of these things it's partially the amount of destruction they can cause but it's mm-hmm. partially diplomatic as well right why are tanks the line? Good question, right?
2: I kind of wonder if part of it is with the Germans having kind of some trauma still over what they did during World War II. And so so I think that they particularly see the tank as a very offensive weapon. And I think, yeah, on a basic level is yes. If you have a military that's once the most optimal, you know, firepower for defense, it's maybe you can concentrate more anti-tank weapons, you know, portable ones to defend an area. But eventually... You that defensive military also wants to counterattack and or even go on the more ambitious counteroffensive, and then you still want armored vehicles. Uh, so I think it's sure there's a certain level where having lots of tanks means you might have some defensive intentions. But I think on a practical level, lots of uh offensive weapons also are very useful in defensive war, and it's kind of dubious the idea that Ukraine is going to like go too far and invade Russia or whatever. With tanks it's a very symbolic uh sort of thing and I guess with these infantry fighting vehicles like the Bradley or the the martyr that uh, which is pretty similar which Germany is sending they they felt like this was a sort of comfortable halfway point um but uh yeah I do have the other thing that I find a bit skeptical I'm skeptical about is that that if you' there are two things which might be sensitive weapons that cause a lot of destruction like you said and I'd say the artillery, uh, just historically, and I'm, it sounds like to me in this conflict too, kills way more people than direct fire weapons. Hell loitering
1: though. munitions now, right?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. and <laughs> the, the videos of the drone attacks are also really terrifying to me because I could see how helpless many of the people are detecting them when they creep up and like drop the grenades on them. And I, I'm not sure that we have a robust ability on our side to deter that if we have faced an enemy using that ability. No, it's uh, this.
1: It's one of those things that's completely disrupting the battlefield, right? You've got a century of digging foxholes and acting a certain kind of way on the front line to avoid avoid this kind of destruction, and that's just gone. That's over.
2: Yeah, and it actually it has shocked me that the tactic of using these commercial these larger commercial drones because you need a slightly larger grenade, but large commercial drones to drop grenades on tanks sometimes works. Like I've seen a a, a lot of the, those videos and. Well, I mean, how much you know, of that
1: is like, you know, rotting Soviet tanks that don't have that—that's armor's been stripped for parts and sold on thirty years ago. You know, like there's a lot, a lot going on there.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and I I think that hope, uh, probably a lot of designers are going to think, how can we improve top armor? But, like we saw even the Russians before the war, they put on uh, the the, the coke cages, these, the coke cages, yeah, which were probably they were designed to stop these kinds of attacks, and it looks like it was in a sense. Uh, they, in theory, probably would work against a grenade, but then not against all sorts of other weapons. But so they kind of knew it might be a problem. And, uh, we'll have to, to think about it too. Maybe the solution might be somewhat Soviet style to use explosive reactive armor bricks on the top roof. Uh, for example, to there's like a video of a, a Ukrainian tank that got hit in the side by a kamikaze drone. And it looks like the bricks on its armor helped save it. But if these things do create new vulnerabilities. They haven't yet reached the point where they've uh, caused obsolescence, is, is what I'd say. So you'd still see both sides wanting the, these armored vehicles, even if, yeah, people are always finding new ways to defeat them. But everybody also adjusts to that and changes their tactics.
1: Sebastian Roblin, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. Where can people find your work?
2: Well, I I write quite frequently for 1945 these days, uh, as well as Forbes, and I sometimes write uh, op-eds for NBC. Uh, Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'd I'd rather just sort of analyze this. And they're like, no, take a strong opinion. So they've given me a a good drill (laughs) on uh, making more assertive arguments. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin O'Dell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe.